So at what point that day did it become the plan to pull your money together and go and buy the accordion boy? After laser tag. I want to recount that, may I? It was after we roved to the park and were at a particular cafe together drinking, after we were at a particular pub drinking, before laser tag. And whose idea was it? Um, I, th I think it was John Lakeman's. I think it would have been John's that day. I recall clearly that day he was full of warm feelings and pilsners. I sure am. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of McMillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show, Patriot. My name is Luke Burbank. Right over there is my fellow uh, Patriot enthusiast and a guy who I know is always ready to rove, Andrew Walsh. Hey, buddy. I thought you were going to say I'm always filled with pilsners, which is equally well, accurate. Well, that's true as well, but I didn't want to necessarily put your personal business on blast here on the uh, show, but I mean, that's a given, I think. Yeah, absolutely. This episode, Luke, um, which I will let you introduce in a moment, is the one that I kind of had circled on my calendar from um, the moment we began this. The, a couple of scenes I had mentioned, I believe, last week, the I was very kind of anxiously awaiting the scene where Leslie uh, tries to reunite with his family, because I remember that as being mm -hmm. a very powerful scene, and then uh, this entire episode um, has been something that I've been really, really anxious, but not necessarily negatively anxious, but just anxious for you to see and for us to discuss. If nothing else, this episode has introduced the term rove into my lexicon. I think we call it in our personal friendship rolling thunder. There's a moment where... Uh, I can't remember if it's Ed says it to John or John says it to Edward, but it's like, what is it? Like, are you ready to rove or should we rove or whatever? I just, I love that. Great way to explain a lost afternoon. Right. And I, I don't think this is really accurate. This is not what you, you would technically call a bottle episode, but doesn't it almost have the feel of a bottle episode a little bit? I know I'm repeating myself a lot on this podcast, but one recurring theme is, I love these characters. I want this universe to continue forever, but I want them all to quit their dangerous jobs and just hang out and have a good time. And this is this. I mean, it was obviously very fraught. This episode, there are there there are painful moments in this, but you finally do get to see just a glimpse of what it would be like if they could just quit the, these terrible jobs and just hang out and be. Yeah, to see my notes. On this episode, which I actually tweeted at Stephen Conrad, which is a weird thing to do. Wait, what did you I do? Just said you something tweeted like, all your notes or just I just I basically took a screenshot because I watched the show and I just sort of am taking notes throughout to make sure I'm remembering things and, and just like, you know, it's a lot going on. But it was such a it was such a journey of of happiness and then uh, nervousness. And I was having a lot of different emotions during the watching of this episode so much so that I took a screen cap of it and I tweeted it at Stephen Conrad and I said something like, if you want to see what it's like to watch one of your episodes mm. of Patriot, like if you want to see it through our eyes, this is just a breakdown because it's me just going like, amazing, smile alert. Can the show just be over now? Can we just end it here? And then <laughs> right. not a go on and get. Right. You know, a go on and get. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Major go on and get, which we'll we'll go on and get to here in a few minutes. Let's start, though, with. <laughs> This uh, this episode is, of course, episode six of season two. It's Fuck John Wayne is the name of the episode. I don't know if we would, on our other show, TBTL, which, if you haven't heard it, my goodness gracious. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you're missing out. Burning up the charts. I don't know if, Too beautiful if to we, live. I don't know if we would use the F word as liberally as we'll probably end up using it here because it is the name of the episode. And it's actually kind of a big a big part of the beginning of this one. Although it actually starts, this episode, seven years earlier John is in Quantico, uh, which is like uh, that's. I mean, I always associate Quantico with the FBI. Yeah, me too. It's, but he's he's CIA though. I mean, they've the CIA is probably there too. They're probably like, let's have all the secret shit in one place. 
Hmm, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I don't know. Maybe he did come up through the FBI, because I associate the FBI with Quantico. And also, um, is, is it explicitly the CIA that we've been dealing with? This is such a basic, dumb question. I don't even know. I don't That's know, because his, he, he mentioned specifically that Tom is the head of intelligence, right? Not specifically the CIA. Right. And the CIA, they're the ones doing all the stuff overseas. The FBI, they're the G-men. They're doing all the stuff stateside. Supposedly. That's how I think of those two, those two organizations. Anyway, it's at Quantico, and it's a it it is this very it's kind of you know it's a little bit brutal this instruction that John's getting over basically how to fight a dog. It's interesting; I never thought of it this way. But they're saying, look, a dog weighs about eighty pounds. Fight it like you're fighting an eighty pound person, because dogs are kind of scary. If a dog is coming at us, even though it's physically smaller than us, it's terrifying. But if you think about it differently, and this is. These are the kinds of things that I always wonder if this was a thought Stephen Conrad had or one of the others, other writers had had at some point, which was like, basically, why are we afraid of dogs when they weigh much less than us? And like it seemed that, that if that was a thought someone had at some point, it's finally found a home in the beginning mm-hmm. of this episode because it's like, yeah, you throw out, I think they call it a, uh, a let them bite a lesser limb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. You just put something out there. You let them gnaw on a lesser limb when you're not using, and then you, you know, you basically beat them unconscious or to death. Again, it's it's brutal to hear this instructor talking about it. I do think Rudy took some exception too, nice. because my dog Rudy was sitting at my feet while I was watching this episode. She looked at me like, "Really? This is how you entertain yourself?" I told her, "I said, take it up with Conrad and the crew." Um, but I also think it's a view into it's a it's a really interesting view into how John approaches battle and maybe even you could say life but definitely how he goes into fights there's just something there's just this intense kind of practicality about how he does it and and he knows you know that if you jump off of a thing this high and you land this way on your head you'll be out for 17 minutes he just knows all this stuff and clearly this is where he learned it but again it's just there's nothing romantic about it there's nothing cool it's just you put a lesser limb out you let him chew on it and then you do what you have to do that's just kind of how he moves through this job at all times. Yeah, but I think also we see how pained he looks during this. I almost, I, I kind of want to play the tape. I mean, it's just awesome opening tape. It is the epitome of dark humor because it is funny, This, this, how they shoot this and the audio that you hear. But it's also, I, I swear, we see him grimacing because he's, as the instructor is talking see, sometimes about... sometimes I can't tell the difference between a grimace... And I don't know what's going on with John half the time. I mean, a big old smile, I can kind of identify that. But I don't know if I saw the same thing. That's not me saying you're wrong. I just I couldn't figure out what his emotional state was as he was learning this info. I feel like a bunch of emotions kind of cross his face throughout this. The way it's shot is really funny. Like you just hear off screen this instructor who is definitely like comes off as being a real I can't even think of a word, but a real jerk. Like this is a, an instructor who has uh, who who talks uh, kind of down to the people that he's teaching, and he's just talking about like just beating the shit out of a dog, um, and it doesn't sound like oh this is an unpleasant thing that you might have to do in the field, but almost sounds like this is somebody who kind of gets a kick out of this kind of stuff. I could be reading too much into it. And John at first looks very kind of disgusted, and I feel like his face looked really pained while he's listening to this graphic description of punching a dog in the head. And um, I think it also speaks to what we know about John. Like yeah, he will always do his job, but when when it comes to these issues, these moments where he has to do something nasty to an innocent, I think it does pain him. And I think that he's got a lot of emotions around animals. And I think that we're supposed to be thinking of his, you know, love of Charlie that's going to come around seven years later. And so um, I don't know. I read that as him just being like, oh, God, please, may I never have to fight a dog. I would normally say like trigger warning if you're somebody who doesn't want to hear about, you know, someone being mean to an animal. But I'm assuming most of the people hearing this have watched this episode, so they've already been through it. All right, man versus dog. My advice, open your mind. Each of you weighs an average of what? 180 pounds. Your average dog, 80 pounds, man. So if you fought an 80-pound dude, you'd spend half of it laughing and all of it fucking that little motherfucker up. So approach it like you're fighting a little weird 80-pound man with powerful jaws. Let's talk technique, one that works well. Simply allow your dog opponent to clamp down on a lesser used limb, like, say, your left arm, which allows you four minutes to beat the fucking shit out of him with your advantaged right hand. KO. You guys know what that is? 
Knockout. Brain damage. That's what KO fucking means. You render their fucking brains damaged until they lose consciousness. So, fight the fucking dog like a fucking dog and go right at his ass and let him bite a lesser limb. Then knock the little motherfucker out by punching him in the fucking little dog head where his little fucking dog brain is. They're trained to take you down, so I'm training you to take them down, which I pretty much just did. All right, uh, please turn to page nine and we'll learn how to knock a woman unconscious with a bicycle. And then there's a, then there's like a, a drawing of it. Yes. That, I think that joke is so funny. Then we, for the first time, the camera angle changes. We see over John's shoulder the manual that he's reading. He turns the page and there's like a, the best way to describe it is like maybe an airplane safety manual uh, when, yeah. you're, when you're flying and you pull that thing out of the seat in front of you. And it's of somebody attacking a woman with a bicycle, which is so funny that like the specificity of it, not how to attack someone with a bicycle, but how right. to attack a woman with a bicycle is, uh, I don't know. I love that opening. So we go from there right into the credits, and then uh, we open post-credits. John and uh, Charlie are watching Mina. By the way, one of my embarrassments when I tweeted at Stephen Conrad was I intentionally misspelled Mina's name in my notes because when I write it correctly, I want to pronounce it Mina. Oh, okay. So I, I, I wrote it incorrectly to remind myself of how to say it, but then I put myself on blast. Mm-hmm. Not unlike Brit Hume recently tweeting out some political stuff when one of the tabs that was open was about sexy vinyl vixens. I'll never live that one down. I know this. I, when <laughs> was major, this? Major tangent for this show about the, the Amazon Prime program Patriot. But yeah, it happened the other day. Maybe we'll pick this conversation up on TBTL oh, if we so choose. Yes. Okay. I'm going to be looking My up point this is, I was for the rest of this episode. I was a little embarrassed when I, when I tweeted this out and... I wanted Stephen to know that I know that Mina's name is spelled differently. But anyway, uh, uh, John and the therapy dog are kind of watching Mina in the other room. And then Alice gets this email from a get that I didn't actually exactly understand what was going on. Uh, she asked something about, is the, do you have the sword in hand or is the sword in hand? What was that about? I believe that she is um, caught, contacting Alice saying we – we want to go after Tom. Are you going to give us what we want on Tom? She's isn't that what happened in the sword in the hand when she explained the the same? I don't remember the. They made such a point of explaining what the um, sword in hand reference was, but essentially that's a text message saying, "Are you going to help me get Tom or not?" And also, um, I'm a little confused as to what's going on with this medical piece of paper that we see uh, that says Thomas Tavner. Um, in this scene, we see John holding, I think, is it a prescription? Yeah. Is that his prescription? I couldn't exactly tell either. I thought maybe you'd know the answer to that one. I'm not sure, but I do think that that text message means, are you helping me get Tom or not, Alice? And I think that we're going to uh, see that again at the end of the show when Alice walks away from the party because she's so frustrated that John has to be employed once again into this dangerous world. I think that she's walking along the river thinking, I think it's time for me to help Alice just stop this by getting Tom. Of course, because I uh, semi-regularly go through breakups where I alienate otherwise very good women in my life. I'm constantly worried that Alice is just leaving John for good. Mm -hmm. This will be a recurring theme of me co-hosting this show because I was like, I wrote down somewhere like, is Alice leaving him for good? You think that she's actually just kind of confirming in her own mind or reaching the breaking point where she knows that she has to be part of taking Tom down. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, and again, I should remember this. There's only two more episodes left. I just don't remember the details of this particular storyline. But just in this episode, knowing what I know as a viewer who's watched everything up through this episode now, I mean, I think that that is what she's contemplating. Like, we clearly Mm -hmm. have a get trying to convince her to help her get Tom. Uh, John's mom is also there. She's um, being maternal. She asks him, when's the last time you changed your clothes or had some time off with your wife, put some effort into it? She's kind of just giving him a pep talk about, I guess we could call it self-care and also relationship care, which is um, always wonderful. And ushers in really like just, I would say, maybe the the most heartwarming and beautiful 28 minutes or something of this show ever. Starting with John's song, Walking in Paris, To Get Drunk, I'm Not Alone, My Friends Are With Me. And then it's just like, oh, my God, he finally, 
he's just finally has some people around to help share the load. In fact, I think in the song, there's even something about how, you know, it's okay. Like it's okay if he gets fucked up or it's okay if he, if, if he gets drunk because his friends are with him, like he just feels like he has some people in his corner for once. Oh my God. I can't think of a scene where somebody drinks a beer and appreciates it more than him just downing that pint uh, and then having the huge smile afterwards. And then, I mean, John dancing. I mean, just seeing John uh, dance completes me. That's hard me. to dance that badly. Like that makes the that makes it. the Elaine I from know. Seinfeld look like a Jabberwocky from uh, <laughs> So You Think You Can Dance. Like that's really bad dancing. I don't know how so that actor great. did that, but kudos. I know it's so great. What I also like as they rove is. We actually – it kind of exposes some of their weaknesses as people as well. Like, I mean, John, I, I almost uh, beatify him. Is that the right word when you treat somebody like a yes. saint? Yeah. Um, I believe, yeah, that's to make him a saint. To make somebody a saint. You know, it's easy to kind of beatify him because of what he's up against and we see him getting broken down. But, like, they do get drunk and they, you know, like, they do not enter into – trying to purchase a child's freedom very responsibly, right? And they make no, some they're other... they're just being dumbasses. They're just being dumbasses, right? <laughs> like yeah. that scene where they not... try to shoo them away. Oh, yeah. Let's get to that in a minute because that's a biggie for me. I have a lot of questions about the larger implications of that or what the kind of, you know, larger idea is behind that. But another thing that's crazy to me is that Ron Saperstein's not dead. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, Rob Saperstein is not dead. Which I was so excited about. Tom, like, calls him somehow, gets a hold of him, I guess, gets him over there to Paris. And, like, I was so delighted by that. That was another genuine moment of joy. This show is often about dealing with, you know, loss of a character or a character's innocence and sad things. But good old Rob Saperstein, good old afternoon spray coming around the corner, that just made me so happy. Yeah, I almost spoiled that for you. Um, you did not spoil that for me. I feel bad. I feel no, like no, 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 no. I'm, the... talk- I'm not talking about yes, I'm talking about um, episodes oh. and episodes ago. I'm talking actually in, in season one when it looks like Rob has actually taken his own life. Uh, you and I were talking about it in the show, and, and I'm like, I guess this is it. And I was, again, embarrassed that I couldn't remember. But part of me felt like he's not gone and then i remembered wait wait no no i know he's at the bachelor party i remember that i just couldn't Uh remember how we get there and so i think i just started like throwing a bunch of word smoke up during that segment to try to see it work especially befuddled and to not let you know that he would be coming back the beauty of you cultivating that character for now i don't know what it is maybe 15 episodes is it worked perfectly when you needed it yeah the character of not being able to remember groundwork yeah right yes it was perfect i was like that that checks out um i was yeah what i was referring to was i was so excited about the reappearance of rob that i like immediately texted you i actually texted you a picture of the dog watching tv your dog fairly sedate but i was like yeah my dog and i was like rob like you know rob saperstein's back and then you said you texted back um. Oh, yeah, because the uh, kayak had a crack in it. And then I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I didn't even thought of that. And then I waited a while, and then we got to that scene, and then they said it, and I was like, oh, yeah, he just said it. And then when I looked back at the text message between me and you, it reads like, well, this is – it says uh, – the you write, the crack in the kayak saved him. And then I type, oh, amazing. I never thought of that. Now that he just said it, I thought of it, which just sounds like the biggest, like – I'm mad at you for telling me that, but I wasn't. I was excited when I heard you say it, and then I was excited when it happened on the show. And it was like, of course that crack was going to come back to play some kind of role in this guy's life because of how you know how much it was a part of him not being able to sell the kayak in the first place. Yeah, and again, um, this episode I, – I floated this last week because I knew this episode was coming, and I've just been wanting to talk about this episode for a while. But him coming back and having Gregory there and everybody in this scene – like in this kind of whole rove mm-hmm. episode, that again made me wonder if the showmakers had – knew that there was some writing on the wall, and so they just wanted a real – and I don't know if I'm using this right. I'm not exactly sure what fan servicing means, but I feel like I was mm. fan serviced in, in a good way with this episode because, and again, 
I think you're right. Production schedules and what have you wouldn't probably allow you to go back and rewrite something just so that you can get the whole gang back together. I don't know how TV works. But there's something about this episode of they had to bring him back. They had to bring Gregory. They just had to bring all of these lovely characters all just so that we could all see them interact together and have an episode that isn't isn't completely fraught from beginning to end. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I wrote in my notes, uh, I already mentioned this once, but in all caps, it was at the point where, and we're just, this is going to be one of those episodes. This is like a bottle episode where we put all of the information in a bottle and then shatter it. Mm-hmm. And then the pieces are all over the floor. Um, but I, after John does some non-sexual cuddling with Rob, mm-hmm. I wrote in all caps, can the show just end here, please? I'm fine right, with that. Right. I literally would have been okay with him just being like, fiend. Yes. Because it's just so lovely and and happy and things are going so great. Let's, though, jump back to an earlier part of the episode, which is when the uh, the the one-legged Milwaukee cop, the guy who has the fuck John Wayne t-shirt – is 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 doing that what are we calling them depositions what are we calling the video things? i've been calling them depositions and i find that character so interesting because first of all he's other than john he might be the most badass person on the show would you agree like his he's just hmm. like everyone else has kind of got like you know cool rick is we're like when edward's like i can run faster than other people it's like no you can't you're an idiot you know <laughs> and everyone has their kind of hang up this guy i mean he's missing a leg but everything else about him he just seems so clear-eyed i wrote in my notes i feel like he might almost get john more than anyone because he understands that like the real guys that are badass are like john they're not like john wayne they're like john tavner and also there's a real negative impact on someone having to go through all of this. And he's obviously been through some shit himself. I, don't, I can't remember. Do, do we know how he lost his leg? I yeah, I don't know if I made this backstory up in my head or if they mentioned I assumed it was a war injury, but I don't know why. That's kind of what I assumed, too, I think, because – and I don't know if this was ever explicit or if I just also made it up. But when, when uh, John's stealing those, uh, like, art prosthetics from the, like, swimming – exercise room pool thing in my mind that was a bunch of veterans who had Mm -hmm. lost legs or limbs but i don't know if it says that or if i just assumed that was the backstory same exact feeling i have um but i will also add to give credence to our assumption there that in his um little soliloquy there where he's talking about fuck john wayne it's clear to him that it's it bothers him that john wayne basically got a deferment, didn't serve in the war, but then got to play a war hero in the movie. I mean, that's the whole thing that he's talking about there. So that would also kind of imply that this guy has, you know, a very personal connection to combat. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, because he also says a lot of people died. (laughs) A lot of people with flat feet did die over there. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I just like this guy. Uh, I just like his kind of um, no-nonsense. But he just seems like he's about the right shit. You know what I mean? He's not like... Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's just he's 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 not he's not all bravado and no follow through. He just seems like he gets it. That's why I, I don't know. I guess I feel like in my mind, him and John have some kind of like they're they're almost equals in a certain way. Even when they were talking to him about how John was picked up outside the pharmacy, just his way of talking in the deposition again is very. It do, he doesn't seem like a Milwaukee cop who can't shoot straight. Mm-hmm. He seems like a very highly trained, smart, logical guy who happened to have the misfortune of losing one of his legs and ending up in the. Uh, you know, evidence room in the Milwaukee PD mm-hmm, with the other broken toys. Isn't that what they call themselves? Exactly, uh, something like that. Um, hey, there was this little quick moment that I'm sure will become a thing, and you already know what it is, but I don't. Where we're at the compound now, and Wallace Kandahar, the Jaywick Sands kid's dad, I believe, if I read this right, somebody's trying to offer him a gun for protection. He says he doesn't want it, but I guess everyone has to have one. Yeah, that's a very quick um, scene there. I don't have any clarity to add either. He said everybody needs these for protection. Um, I assume that that's going to kind of pay off as we see where this episode ends. John needs to now infiltrate before they get out of there, before they leave the country. And so I assume the fact that everybody has a gun was some information we needed to know going into that scene. Yeah, I feel like that's... um I feel like that's they didn't put that in for no reason. But again, you and I are in very different worlds with our experience with this show because I have not actually seen how everything comes to an end. But I figure that guy, that guy getting that gun is going to be a thing. Very, uh, what do you say, check off with that? Oh, right. Um, 
So then now I we're getting in the time sorry in the time in the time span of of this episode. Now we're getting to the basically the wake for John Tavner, uh, and I believe they do that toast, and we get a massive John Tavner style. Um, also, it's very fun for me as a viewer to get to see Gregory not only have a violent streak, <laughs> but to have a for Gregory to kind of be asking with interest of John what was the hardest part about pretending to work at Macmillan Men. It's just a massive relief for me because I feel like John was so bad at being slick in conversation with people um, that now that they all know that that's why he was bad at it, it's just like, oh, thank God. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what – and that's why I remembered so fondly this episode because it's so much – sweet release and i just i love gregory as a character so much and to get to see him a little bit more i'm not shocked or or surprised which i think is the same thing i'm just stalling to hear that he's into scale models that seems to oh no that's very i would love to make models with gregory like that would be a great afternoon um this is a hard this is a, a sort of an unfair question from me to you because i guess the only way you could answer it would be to give something away, but I'm still, of course, unclear on what the point of bringing Rob back is, other than if it was just because he wants John to have a nice day. But this seems like a pretty involved thing for John to have a nice day. It does seem involved, I think. And I don't remember where the Rob storyline goes from here, if anywhere. We only have two more episodes. I think that it's just... I think it's Tom really trying to give his son the best gift he can have. And I think he does. I think he gives him two incredible gifts in this episode. The first one is he tracks down his best friend from God knows where and and brings him to his funeral slash brother's bachelor party. And I think the second biggest gift he could give him is to not attend this party. And I think that we see both of those things. Like it is oh, very deliberate. Think of that. When Tom uh, leads Rob to the cafe and says, that's where it is. Now go on, have fun. And it's very deliberate that Tom then walks away because Tom knows that th- this, this day is a gift to his son and he delivered Rob and he wasn't going to sully it with his own presence. Which is an intense thought because, again, I, I've never – actually, I've said a lot of things on this show, so I can't say definitively what I have and haven't said. But I don't think I've ever thought that Tom doesn't love John. I just think that Tom is loses sight of how much he's damaging uh, John with his actions. And so this is – you know, that is a big thing for him to, like, realize that his very presence is actually going to make it less fun for his son mm-hmm. and kind of leave it alone. And pretty much everyone's there. I don't think – his mom's not there, and his dad's That's not true, there. Maybe yeah. they're rekindling. It's possible. We can't rule that out. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, like it, you're right. That's a that's a that's a big move on his part to 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 realize that he's not going to make things more fun for John. Yeah, and again, I don't think it's because um, John doesn't love his dad or doesn't want to be around his dad. But I think Tom just in a in a true and maybe somewhat rare moment of. Um, uh, self-awareness just knows that his presence will drag this this situation down. Um, now, uh, let's see. Next up on my little list is, oh, this is just a, you know how, like, you've got a couple things, I think, that, that you come back to or have come back to. This is one that I always come back to that is of such low interest to anybody watching except me, but it's it's the way that they shoot the show sometimes. I mean, just, I've never been like you know part of a production uh, at this level but even being in a silly tv commercial or something the main thing they're always doing is blocking all of the windows so that the light is not coming in from behind people Mm -hmm. because when you're filming someone or videotaping them and there's light behind them then they are just in a shadow so you do this very elaborate thing of blocking all the windows and then bouncing other light in so that it kind of seems like there's light coming from the windows, but it's actually not happening in this way that makes the shot. I mean, it's a big deal and they don't do any of that on this show. At least they haven't lately. Like there's this scene, I guess it's Rob and John are just sitting there in the window. It's, it's around the time when the non-sexual cuddling is coming in and the light is just blowing them out. And it, I find it so fascinating that this is a choice that they keep making on the show. Yeah, I like it. I think it's great um, because you don't see the subtlety of their faces and, 
Um, you know, I'm looking at that shot right now. It's beautiful. You see all of the beer, empty beer bottles in front of them, really signifying yeah. where we are in this day. Like kind of a there's um, there's been some bad dancing. There's going to be more uh, high energy running through the streets and cycling later. But right now, this is one of those moments that seems very relatable to me in a party like this, where you and your good friend just kind of take a moment, you know, and have a bit of a, I don't know if nadir is there, nadir uh, in the action. Um, but uh, it's a real, I, it's a really moving scene. This whole, I had a little yeah. bit of a lump in my throat for like most of this. I I believe it. Like, because, I mean, yeah, this is, you. other than Edward and maybe his mom, you know that, that, that Rob is, is is kind of like one of the few people or an Alice obviously but it's one of the few people that's really gotten kind of into John's heart because of their collaboration on uh, what are they called Timon and Saperstein Is it Timon and Saperstein? Yeah, like so them sitting there and then talking about how they're not doing well. You know, that's when yeah. Rob kind of talks about the the kayak cracking and it's like and John's just not the kind of guy who ever admits that he's not doing well. So the fact that they're sitting there just having a moment and everyone else is off doing their bad dancing or whatever. It, you're right. It's a really beautiful moment. It's a moment we've been hoping – I've been hoping John could have more of them the whole time I've been watching the show. Yeah, and Rob really looks rough. I mean Rob's always you know, living really? a little bit on I thought the, he looked about the same, which is it, rough. You know, that's funny. May, maybe this is in my head. But to me, Rob obviously is not in good shape. He's always living on the margins. He's broke as a joke. He's drinking too much. All, I mean this is – all part of the character, but he also has uh, kind of an inner glow, an inner life, an optimism, and that light seems to be extinguished Out. or significantly reduced. He seems, I could be wrong, he seems bigger, he seems older, he seems like he's limping more, it seems like every mm. movement is a little bit more of uh, effort for him, he sounds more out of breath all the time, he just seems... He seems like yeah. he's really outwardly in the same way John must look so much more rough to him too. Yeah, like I mean, that's why it's so poignant. Although ultimately, I mean, what are you guys actually doing? But like when they're taking up a collection to try to buy the freedom of the accordion kid and Rob's like I have 100 euros and he's like no, like in my life. Yeah. And then Somebody's like, I think it's John's like, yeah, but what's freedom worth? And then he just gives it over. It's like, it reminds me of this like biblical principle that I grew up with, which was like this, you know, I think it was even maybe a comic that was in a religious tract, which was, you know, there was, it's a, it's a pig and a chicken and they're going to like provide the fixings for breakfast and the chicken's going to donate eggs and the pig's going to donate bacon. And the idea is that like for the pig to donate bacon is the end of the pig the chicken has lots of eggs to donate and it's like this is this is the bacon mm -hmm. for rob this is is hundred i mean the, we know that he's got child support problems he's trying to sell a bunk kayak to make money it's like the guy is on like you said on the margins his last hundred euros i mean that's everything to this guy and uh i wish it had gone to a more well thought out plan <laughs> well i like to think that somebody in the gang paid rob back later because they are all of more means they just needed it in the moment i i went through that whole <laughs> maybe i should write fan fiction uh, yeah i should write fan fiction just based on how we paid rob back but like my brain went Venmo. on the same journey i was just like i hope somebody's paying him back um by the way one last note that i have on rob is I am more and more buying into your magic train theory. Now, this wasn't a coincidence that, you know, this wasn't one of those deus ex machina things where Rob just shows up in the cafe and they reunite. Like, they make a, right. they make a very specific point of saying, no, this is something that Tom did. He found this guy. He brought him. This is something that Tom arranged. But the first time we see Rob again reincarnated, if you will, is getting off the train and being on the train platform. And I thought, ah, Interesting. there's Luke's magic train. Like the best things happen and the most magical things happen via the train. I don't know if there's any credence to that at all, but I like living in this world. Well, it's a good point. I mean, they could have shown him. They could have met up on a street somewhere. There's other places they could have materialized him. And it's like, yeah, there might be something to that. Um, I was uh, uh, as the as the. 
Well, let me, actually, I was going to talk about Ichabod in the deposition, which was the opening audio, which I found hilarious. I love the Ichabod characters. It's so funny how you can, on this show, go from like really, really not mm-hmm. digging a character to being like, you love it when they're on screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's very much happened with me and Ichabod. But before that, you have Ron kind of just keeping tabs on everything and not having a drink and being very, like, you know, um, professional. I'm wondering, though, because what Ron's monitoring is the, you know, is the official cable, I guess, requesting uh, that the Iranian de- uh, delegation leave or requesting permission to leave or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, I'm sorry. Is there a question there? Sorry. Well, I guess I'm just my. I wanted to make sure that I had that right. But also, oh, I yeah. just was wishing that, like, at some point I was like, is Ron going to like – is Ron or Tom, is one of them going to have the awareness to like literally just not raise an alert on this? Like I know that there's two more episodes of the show, so that wouldn't really work with with, with the the kind of plot arc. But it was like I just wanted Ron to just be like, yeah, I'm not going to – I'm going mm-hmm. to make an executive decision to not tell anyone. You know, John is having this bachelor party for his brother slash death for John Lakeman. This is great. I'm going to, like, let him have this. But no, of course not, because he's an officious little asshole slash wife or slash husband. What was his official designation? He was the husband. I'm John's husband. No, you're not. No, I'm not. Um, (laughs) I mean, officious little asshole. He has been that in the past, but I feel like he has grown some depth in as the episodes go on. And listen, he's doing his job. Like, he's doing his job. Yeah, well, so are the people that work the gas chambers, okay, Andrew? I realized as I was saying that. I realized as I was saying that what that sounded like. Thank you for putting the the finest point on that for me, Luke. I try to go with the least extreme <laughs> example of somebody just following through on their job when, when it's not necessary in my mind. Um Another little fun moment in this episode is that, of course, Dennis speaks Romanian. Like, of course he does. If they sell oil there, if there's oil there, I speak the language. Yeah. It's a good line. I love that they give. I mean, we've already talked about this, but I love them giving the Dennis character that kind of superpower because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he is, you know, he's kind of a he sort of screws a lot of other things up. He's not the coolest customer, but he just has this one thing that he can always do, which is he's the sort of what is that a a, a, a polymath. Is that somebody who speaks lots of languages? Um, anyway, I love that he can speak Romanian. I think that's really cool. Polyglot. But polyglot. 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 What's a polymath? Because polymath is a thing, too. It maybe I just want to make sure. Does it involve math? I um, think it actually does. Polymath. A person of wide-ranging knowledge or learning. Polymath. polymath but there you go. Polyglot is just language-specific, right? I guess so. I just learned that. I'd heard the term a um, lot before, for the record. So I was very bummed when I realized what was unfolding around this, like, Romanian kid. Because, again, it's unclear, really, if that person in charge of him is actually enslaving him or not. We've never really gotten, other than Ichabod's theory, we've never really gotten confirmation on that. And they're just giving the guy a bunch of money, and then they're just walking with the kid, which, let's just say, best case scenario, he was a slave and now he's free. Where's the kid supposed to go? Well, yeah. Like, You've not. I mean, you've. You talk about jellyfish. It's a real jellyfish situation. You, you thought you fixed one problem, and now you just have this kid who's in the wind. And then they decide to do a go on get with him, of the worst variety, which is the being mean to him so he'll leave. So now he's just has no idea what's going on, and now just has a bunch of people just being mean to him. Like, how's that a good outcome? It's not. That's what I'm saying about this this um, roving, this rolling thunder, as we say. Like, it also yeah. exposes the— Roved cr- right out of control. Yeah. I mean, everybody, too. Like, we just assume—and um, uh, I believe her name is Carol, Edward's fiance, Carol. Yeah. Like, she's n- she doesn't Veterinarian have— Veterinarian yeah. girlfriend. She doesn't have a huge role in this, but you always just kind of—you fill in her backstory because she's always a voice of responsibility and practicality, and we also know that she's got— um, apparently you see love in her heart and it's got to be tough love at times because Edward is just <laughs> so problematic at times. It would be one of the worst people to be in a relationship with. Um, but so you just like kind of because of what we know about, you know, tropes and everything else that we read and see on TV, we sort of fill in this backstory and we think we know her and she can kind of be um, 
more one-dimensional but then even she in this like during the go on get scene like she's the one who's almost like kind of she says something that's i can't remember exactly like what it a is. horse yes she she's like mocking him look at him go like a horse and like it's interesting well, she says you, that before yes and like, she, she calls like, back to it yeah yeah exactly like and that was when i knew things were getting out of control because there now here's i don't how do i how do i talk about this without well anyway let's just say that I was I did was doing some back channel communicating with one Stephen Conrad and I'm going to get confirmation on this. I don't know if he just wasn't familiar with the particular terminology I was using or if he was unfamiliar with with uh, what a go on get is. Mm. Maybe that's not even a thing. Maybe my ex-girlfriend invented that. I thought that was just like a commonly widely known trope of when basically like in old yeller or like in the Ricky Schroeder movie The Champ where you where you're mean to someone to get rid of them. Um, but this was I've always associated yeah. with TBTL. I had never I mean, this goes back to the radio days of TBTL. So back in 2009, I remember you and the gang on the radio talking about go on gets. But I always assumed that that was just a term that you guys had made up because I, I haven't think Van heard might have made that up. I really? thought she'd gotten it from like the Criterion collection. But I guess maybe that's a T, uh, an original from my life. Um, because I, it, Stephen Conrad, I, again, I, hopefully he won't be annoyed that I'm saying this, but he was kind of like, what was that last note? Because he looked at my tweet, and he was, mm-hmm. and, and it's me in all caps going, not a go on get like the champ. I guess those words don't make sense if the thing I'm referring to was just invented by my ex-girlfriend. Right, yeah. Um, but I know but what you mean by a go on very heartbreaking. I was thinking of it, yes. Now, what do you think? Where'd the kid go? Again, I might be asking you questions you know the answer to. Um, which puts you in an, uh, an impossible position. But I guess I just assume the kid just ran back to the guy who now has the 1800 bucks. Yeah, and again, there's still not a lot of clarity. I would assume, though, that this man who is taking money means that there – to me, that does confirm that this was an illegal – an illegal arrangement between him and the boy or mm-hmm. and, and this is going to be embarrassing because if this is answered and I don't remember here we go again with my bad brain but um, I, I also think that the boy might go back because you know that that is like kind of the slaver's dilemma or, or the slave's dilemma sort of right like you can't just give a little boy total freedom like that when he's got apparently no other adults in his life like he needs somebody he needs shelter he needs uh he's dependent right and so what is he supposed to do this is incredibly irresponsible on the part of our heroes and it's weird again to sort of see them all kind of be shitty and this is what i was talking about with the kind of larger implications i mean i don't want to read too much into it but part of me wondered is this a way of kind of representing I don't know how we as Americans, like how we as a nation Mm. just basically go around fucking things up, Mm. thinking we're making it better, being very proud of ourselves, but then just leaving things much worse than we found them. Yeah. No, that's a really – that's an interesting way of looking at this. I hadn't thought of that, but I I like that theory. Just in a way, it also kind of relates – just to the overall mission that that Tom has launched. And, I mean, they're trying to stop this nuclear thing. Okay, fine, that's a worthy goal. But along the way, it's you've got Nan is blinded. You've got, you know, just the, you know, Kandahar's sons, or, well, one of them is dead. Actually, wait, is the big guy dead too? Is is alternate universe Cool Rick dead as well? I don't think so. Remember, we saw him in the hospital a couple of episodes ago, and his father was saying that John Lakeman must die. But, yeah, just the damage. I'm just kind of making too fine a point of this now. But it's just this idea that, like, all of these attempts at doing something good, a lot of them just really fuck a lot of people up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And especially John. And John's going – I mean, I think Leslie is the perfect example of that as well. Like, I I know I'm a broken record, but just thinking about how close Leslie got to – fully reconstructing his life. And I know he's not a perfect guy. There's a lot of things to not love about Leslie Claret, right? But to know that he was a man who was so close to righting almost all of his wrongs (laughs) professionally and personally, and it was John and Tom Lakeman who came in and just just destroyed, destroyed it, just burned a path of destruction in his rehabilitation. Hey, speaking of which... No Leslie sightings in this episode. Yeah, no Leslie. And also, I was very surprised that Birdbath didn't have more lines um, because this is just like, again, kind of a fan servicing. We get to see every 
all the characters just kind of having fun and let loose. And he's one of the most interesting characters. I was surprised that he didn't have like a moment uh, as they're roaming around, like some dumb theory he's espousing or doing this or that. He was very quiet. Well, I mean, this is a guy who wanted to be killed when we met him, you know? So maybe, I mean, has there been anything, has anything happened that's changed that for him? I mean, yeah, he's part of this mission, but the assumption is, well, now he has a, you know, raison d'etre, but does he? Well, he's got, he definitely has friends now. I think that I love the bonding between him and Edward and Dennis. Um, And so when we see them all kind of being lovable losers and admitting their faults, you you feel like there's a bonding going on there, which might help because I think that Birdbath, when we first meet him, he's completely alone. He's ostracized. I mean, he's in his own head. He feels terrible for what he did to that little boy that he accidentally shot and killed, but also the reality of having to go around just knowing that he's the security guard who used to be a cop who killed an innocent kid. Um, Now he's kind of far away from that life, and he's got a little gang, so I thought we were starting to see a little bit more, you know, life in him. I mean, that would be the assumption... And that's how things almost always go on a show where someone's down and out and then they get friends and then it's like it's all better. But I'm wondering if because this show rarely delivers on the obvious sort of uh, outcome, I'm wondering if like I could also see this being a show where Jack Birdbath, you know, we all get back to the States and everyone's happy. And then it's like the next day they find out that he went and offed himself <laughs> because he's his his trauma is real and it's still very much in him and he still you know even though things are a little less bad maybe that's still with him i don't want to guess or forecast that i'm just saying maybe that was part of the decision to not have him like partying down like it would have to me it actually would have felt a little bit cheap if it's like birdbath had a silly hat on and he was being like the funny birdbath i don't know Mm -hmm. i like that we get it with gregory but that was enough for me Mm -hmm. like you know so one of the other otherwise serious characters being like wacky would have been like a one step too far for me as a viewer. You don't think that Birdbath has a wackiness to him or like a, maybe not a wackiness is the wrong word, but like Birdbath in previous episodes has been a, a conduit for dark humor. I mean, I think the dimes thing like I mean, I'm not saying that we had to make but him I don't a total think it's but clown, well, but I think that he is a character that has, again, a lot of depth and has brought smiles to our face with some kind of sure. dark humor. And I just think that there could have been some But it all line comes from, from a him. very serious place. Mm-hmm. He sees no humor in the dime situation. He's upset by not knowing the difference. Like, he, he feels like not knowing what European dimes will do versus American dimes. Like, he... Like, the only thing he does is knocks himself out, which is sort of unintentionally comic. Like, he, he seems... To- and I could be forgetting something, but he seems just totally serious throughout the show like he's i've never has he ever cracked a smile on the show i don't know but i i feel like we're talking past each other here because i'm not saying that they needed to do something for him where he would lose sight of his character i would have just liked to see how more about how his character who we have seen you know carry some solo scenes i would have Mm -hmm. liked to see how his character we see that he is part of this roving gang he's there i just would have been very interested to see kind of like to listen in on one of the conversations that he's having as we see him trailing behind with with dennis or whomever got it i got it so you're not you're not saying he has to act any certain way you just would like to see how he behaves in the environment exactly right and not that he needs to laugh but i mean certainly again the dime thing is totally tragic but it's also funny to us the viewer and i just would have liked as as the viewer to get a little bit more birdbath speaking of weird fights so i'm like the whole time thinking okay when does the milwaukee police when are the milwaukee police going to get him because from that one deposition, my sense is that it happened. That's who got him, which is still hard to wrap your mind around because they've all got kind of some limitations. But then there's this moment that I'm thinking there's no way this is going to work, which is that the guy shows up, Charlie's rightful owner, and is basically there to arrest John. And they do this very elaborate, time-consuming thing of and hilarious thing, honestly, of trying to get Gregory to believe that they've been talking shit about train enthusiasts 
I mean, that also could have, by the way, been the opening tape because that yeah. dialogue is just wonderful, right? Yeah, actually, I forgot. That would have been great opening tape. That's hilarious. Yeah. And again, seeing our heroes be kind of shitty. There's a couple of things right. I wanted to talk about. Like, the way that they sit there and have that conversation for what seems like, I don't know, four minutes while the cops are just <laughs> waiting behind them reminded me very much of them being stoned. They're not just drunk at this point. They're being they're they're stoned. They've been smoking yes. joints, and I feel like you know, you know, time is stretching. And, and have we really been here to talk? They don't say that, but as the viewer, you're like, you've been here, like talking about this forever. The cops are behind you. You know, I feel like they do a really good job of kind of like um, giving you that intoxicated feeling, um, and also just like it's. It's kind of mean to Gregory. It's not super mean to Gregory because Gregory is the one who said earlier, I want to get into a fight. So they're giving him that opportunity. But it's certainly um, it is certainly, you know, taking advantage of a couple of different people who don't know what's going on to leverage a fight. And then, of course, when um, the little cop is like kind of running after John and John's just sort of like laughing it off while this other this other cop like he takes this very, very, very seriously. John Lakeman has really created havoc for him and his friends as well. And he's so full of rage. And John is just treating him like so kind of mockingly that it makes you feel kind of bad for rooting for John a little bit. Well, and you realize what that's a callback to, right? No, maybe I'm missing the point. That's the advice on that's the advice on how to defeat a dog. Oh, like, yeah, I did. I I thought of that a little bit, but there's also yeah. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, the guy's like half his size, and he's like, there's literally like a line in that thing that you played. I forget it now, but I heard it, and I was like, that's actually literally a thing the John character starts doing when he's dealing with that much smaller cop who comes after him. I mean, I feel like those are that's a parallel that's probably not by accident the other problem i did for the record i ha- i did i i did have that thought while I, I while i was watching it but it doesn't it doesn't minimize it doesn't minimize though the complicated feelings that you start to have around this part of the episode where you've been enjoying watching these guys kind of all have fun but then as their yeah. fun once again starts to kind of turn cruel both with the accordion maybe not not on purpose but it do, there's a there's a cruel streak to now what's going on with our gang of friends. Yeah, and and to the back to the the cop who has Charlie the support dog. I mean, it makes no difference if John beats him up or if John makes Gregory beat him up. Like if John doesn't want to beat him up, if that's the principle, then having Gregory beat him up doesn't yeah, help. This is exactly. where their logic is completely right. lame at this point. And they're right. you're right, right, they're just being cruel. It's like if you if you think punching him out is wrong, it's also wrong to trick Gregory into punching him out, even though it is funny that Gregory yells trains before he does the move. Yeah, right. That yeah. is actually that's he, pretty funny. And he also does know just to turn and run right away. Like, we know what Gregory's version of a fight now is. Sock somebody and then turn and run as fast as you can. Yeah, like, I'm, I, 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 I hesitate to say it's worked because we know that they've defeated the, the cop who has the, um, you know, anxiety disorder. We know that they've sort of defeated the cop who's, who's diminutive. The one-legged cop is the one that they haven't really gotten yet, and he's the one who... I think has the best chance of catching John, but even in in terms of the first two, I'm amazed that it, I'm amazed that Gregory plan worked. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like I keep again. I'm waiting for him to get caught by those people. In a way, that would have been a relief too, right? Because he's then he's off the market. Mm-hmm. But we have two episodes left, so that can't be what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm also there's a I'm now I have something new going on with my with my notes. There's a lot that I have forgotten about the show, as we've discussed in great detail. But there are a few things that are now driving me crazy with this conversation because things that I do remember that are going to happen in the next couple of episodes that you have said things about that I want to – I want it. I want to tell you about I want to tell you about so much like things that you've just sort of said in passing that I'm like basically, oh, wait for it, Luke. Wait for it. Um. So – the news comes out to Ron that Canterwally is really leaving. He tells John that that's happening. And then Tom calls John, and then John does basically the saddest hello ever. And Alice and Edward are both at different points being kind of like, you're fucked up. You cannot go do this right now. And uh, and then you want to talk about kind of like the the, the way that John is just 
always I mean John has a lot of problems but when it comes to just like being efficient about achieving the mission he's usually like just has this kind of grim determination that's amazing to watch watching him fucked up and being an idiot like punching in windows to mm-hmm. steal earrings to throw at Nan to yell to the when the dad says I forget exactly what Nan's dead Nan's father says but it's basically like it's so without meaning to cuts John down you know to the absolute quick because it's like you're blinded I mean he doesn't know this but it's like you know John has blinded this person possibly for life and like some shitty mouse earrings that you've chucked down a cobblestone street in Paris does not fix it yeah of course not um yeah that's that's where things just get really painful isn't it John out of control and just he's trying to face his demons he's trying to rectify things he obviously can't he can't even in the best of circumstances and these are the worst of circumstances and seeing him really but I, I also though appreciate the show not um glossing over the ugliness uh, of it and and not just being like this is just look it was one episode of a fun romp where John gets mm-hmm. to get drunk and then you see oh yeah like sometimes it's and almost I wondered how much of this um, episode felt like a mirror to you at times I'm not saying you in particular but you me anybody who enjoys um, nights like these <laughs> you know the rolling thunder nights as you call them mm-hmm. uh, where you're getting drunk and you're it's all you, you get to that point where it's like we're just starting off the the night or day is young it's all potential there's dancing involved like I mentioned maybe you even have a heart to heart with your friend you get serious for a little bit but a real I love you man moment like so mm-hmm. much of this so many of the beats are so familiar and then you just start to see like kind of the moment where the the booze and in in this case dope get on top of you a little bit and things just start to get a little bit shitty and then like you know and then that scene outside where he's literally kicking in windows stealing earrings and then chucking them at a woman that he blinded and you're just like go home you're drunk also there's nothing worse than getting drunk when you have to go to work (laughs) like that's a reason why most people don't do it because it's a horrible feeling what's fun about getting drunk is if it's a Friday and you don't have to work on Saturday, that feeling of freedom is a big part of the enjoyment. If it's Friday afternoon and you have to work Friday night, yeah. that's a horrible feeling. It's a terrible like, feeling. Or being on call. Watching him, yes, watching him get that level of loaded, knowing that he's about to get summoned. That's mm-hmm. just, the, I'm trying to remember, I think the closest I ever got to that, I know this isn't really the show where we get into this, but when I was covering Congress for NPR, I believe there was a congressman from, mm, I'm going to say Michigan, and I'm probably going to be wrong, named Peter. It was pronounced Peter Hookstra, but it looked like Hookstra. And I had done this whole story and put it in, and it was edited and recorded and ready to roll on Morning Edition. And at about 2.30 in the morning, I have a missed call from the overnight producer saying, it's not Hookstra, it's Hookstra. And... um, can you come in and fix it? And I am somewhere in D.C. in the wind, like ham-boned. Mm-hmm. And I have to come into the mothership, try to just You had like to come seem. in. That's, these are the days where you had, you had to come in these and These are the it. olden days. Oh, I didn't wow. have you know a setup at my house. I'll, it probably wouldn't have matched. I had recorded it in the studio like we had an office, actually, you know, in, in the House of Representatives. So it was like I had to come in, and I'm sure I just reeked of booze. also like, why was I even up at 3 o'clock in the morning? I mean, it was like... Just and then come in and try to say like Peter Hookstra, mm-hmm. Peter Hookstra, like match it to whatever was in the thing. That was a bad feeling. So John's going to do something much harder than that. Um, he was and, from Michigan, uh, by and, the way, not John, but oh. Hookstra. So congratulations. Hey, look at that old burb. Still got a, still got three brain cells jangling around in there. Anyway, um, so I mean, you again. It's hard for. You'd have probably remember the first time you watched the show, but like it's unsurprising that Tom, like, ultimately kind of reverts back to his essential nature, which is Cantor Wally's leaving, and so we got to stop that. Like, because again, I had entertained this silly notion, which I knew wasn't realistic, because if it had been the final episode, I might have thought eh, it could happen. the The surprise ending could be that Tom just says like. The mission's over. Or we just see Tom running into the courtyard just being tackled by Dutch boy 
security guards. You know what I mean? There's a bunch of things I could have imagined if this were the last episode. It's not. So I know that he's not going to call it off, but I still kind of secretly wanted him to. Well, I'm not going to – I don't – should I respond to this? Let me put it this way. I don't remember the details. I remember some broad strokes of the things that are going to happen. And also by paying so much more attention to uh, some of the episodes we just recently talked about uh, this time around, things make a lot more sense to me. But let me put it this way. Without, I think, giving anything away, they made a point in the last episode to introduce this idea that John is carrying a phone, a kill switch phone that Tom can call at any point. I'd be very surprised if there is not a um, reason why they introduce that at this point in the plot. Um, however, I'm still wondering what the hell Nan's dad needed to talk to her about. <laughs> like, there was a very specific point when we first meet Nan, and they're in the wig shop, right? And the, the father says, I need to talk to you about something. Hey, did I miss the payoff to that? Because I'm still waiting. Oh, right. Yeah. That's not know. relevant to what I'm saying now. I'm just saying that, of course, sometimes right. on things are introduced of... that maybe don't pay off or I missed the payoff on. But anyway, we do know that, and I think in a very deliberate way, the the storytellers have told us they're, John is carrying around a kill switch at any point. Um, and so just keep that in mind. Yeah, good. That's there's a, Yeah, there's a few little things that are happening that it's funny that I would, I would recognize or I would think I recognize the gun being handed to um, – to uh, Kandahar as an important thing, but it didn't even occur to me that that the talk about that phone could actually be very relevant to mm-hmm. the to the end of this season. And I guess for for now is the end of the show, unless we are able to through this the sheer popularity of this podcast get a third season approved by Amazon. I don't know. I mean, like, can we get word to Bezos? Who do we talk to about this? Two hundred listeners can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's our sales pitch. Uh-huh. So the end the end of the episode Edward is going to go with John to do this thing, which I kind of found oddly affecting. I mean, I know I know uh Edward is ride or die, but like to see it in action because this is a suicide mission. You're going into a thing where you're totally outnumbered. And be- and Edward is – he's lovable and he loves his brother, but he's kind of a – he's sort of a moron at the end of the day. But him being like, I'm going with you, that was really powerful to me. Yes, and and powerful emotionally and because of their bond and their relationship, but also just relieving. No, because I think they do something very interesting. Again, we see shots from John's perspective, and for the past four episodes since John got hit by the car on the bike, we've seen this myopic shot of – you know, fuzzy around the edges. John is not literally not seeing straight because of pain and then pain meds. And now in this episode, we're seeing that is combined with drugs and booze and more pain meds. And like John is just, again, maybe you can relate to it as somebody who's found yourself blind drunk at times, as have as have I like that idea it's almost like dreamlike like that those those uh, stress dreams you have where you have to drive a car but you can't see or something mm-hmm. along those lines like this idea that John is going to go into the um into the den, into the lion's den and literally can't yeah. even see straight knowing what a yes. what a week and a night he has had like I just like Edward seems so sober um, by comparison, I know that obviously yeah. he's not a skilled assassin, but like, you know, having a sober person near the <laughs> near the drunk assassin might not be the worst idea. Yeah, I just it, it I mean, I've always I've always thought Edward was a, you know, sweet, but like I said, idiotic guy. Um, but this is him really showing his mettle of him being kind of like. You know, it's you and me like this is this whole thing started with us when we were kids in Texas and now it may end with us here. You know, maybe I'm over assuming that maybe I'm assuming he understands the danger more accurately than he really does, which I guess is another possibility. He doesn't realize how crazy this mission is about to be. Yeah, he's seen some he's seen some shit at this point, though. Actually, this relate one quote as a future former congressperson. Yeah. Um, This relates more to what we're talking about talking about before when we were discussing going to work drunk or whatever, but I did like Edward's line when he says, no, when you're fucked up, you either go home or you get more Mm -hmm. fucked up. Like, you do not go to work. 
And doesn't John say to him, that's a cool, it's like, that's a cool motto or something. I is that so. the line where he's, can you, is there any chance of finding that? I don't want to. Yeah, I think I can find like, that. I, I feel quickly. like that's one of those moments where, and I could be combining two scenes from this in my mind, but I love those moments when Ed will say something to John and John will be like, that's a cool, that's a cool phrase or whatever. <laughs> I mean, he's not doing whatever it is that Edward is saying, but he's observing or he's, 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 he's validating that's a cool phrase. Here, hopefully it's in here somewhere. Let's nice. take a listen. Okay, yeah. It's my bachelor party. Yeah. I have like another 45 minutes, man. It's my bachelor party. Yeah. You're fucked up. What? You're fucked up. Okay. So what are you going to do? What are you talking about? Tonight, you're fucked up. You're drunk and stoned. Okay. So when you're fucked up, you should just go home or stay out and get more fucked up. But you shouldn't go out and do other shit. I'm saying. It's a good saying. <laughs> so what it's are you going saying. to do tonight? I'm saying. <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah, uh, and we end we we end with him putting on his uh, uh, bulletproof vest or whatever you want to call it, which I've never seen him wear. So this is also like, I mean, this is this is a new level of right. I mean, I'm, I'm not misremembering. He's always walking into things just in his whatever his outfit is, and he's putting this thing on as he's singing "Fat Guy in a Little Coat" a la yeah. Chris Farley from Tommy Boy. Yeah, and this is uh, but this isn't his equipment. Remember, and maybe you are saying this i'm not trying to correct you but oh this that's is, what he stole from he the, stole uh, it from trunk. the back of the trunk Excuse me. the boot the boot exactly Did they call it the boot in france though or is that just a british thing uh they probably have a french word for it but regardless lay boot um but even so it's like i don't know there's something about him putting that on i mean i guess he stole it for a reason so it's just it, to me it, it like you never it just feels to me like it's 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 a next level thing, mm-hmm, definitely. Um, because yeah. he's always just kind of walking almost casually into these situations because of all his training. He's sort of already done all the math, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is a time where it's like him putting this thing on. It just feels to me like he's girding himself in a way that we haven't seen before. That's right, and we saw. And again, I think that pro- probably ties back to that scene you mentioned at the beginning, where they said everybody has a gun. Yeah. Right. So that's the end of this episode. Um, any any final thoughts? Anything uh, you want to add before we uh, before we say adios? Um, um, let me see here. I think we hit on everything that I'm just looking at my notes. But um, yeah, no, that's that is uh, that that's a good place to end it. I think let's go out with the Kinks song that we hear. Oh yeah, uh, Death of a Clown, and of course, I think that's supposed to be a reference to the death of. John Lakeman. Yeah, that's right. I love the Kinks so much. Mm-hmm. Um, always, like, I think I have this. I, I've paused it. I think this is, well, I know this is the album cover that they show on Amazon on that x-ray service. It's a Kinks record that I have. I think it's like kind of a greatest hits. But, man, if you're looking for something to listen to, the, and I know it's not cool to recommend a greatest hits. I know I'm supposed to recommend the specific album it's off of. Uh, but I don't know enough about the Kinks. I just know that I have their greatest hits, and I love the songs so much. So, if you do want to know, enjoy. I'm playing this off of Spotify, and I believe the album is called Something Else, not the greatest hits, but the original. The it's from Fine. 1967. Be cool, like Andrew. I just looked it up. And, I'm not uh, saying I don't have this record. Um, but yeah, no, the Kinks are great. All right, hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Macmillan Men. We're gonna be back here next week with. Uh, would that be the penultimate? I've been waiting. Yes, it will properly. be the penultimate. The penultimate yes. episode next week. Until then, uh, have a great week, and remember to keep things double great. <laughs> <laughs>